0: Happy New Year, everybody. Happy new Year. Happy new Year. It's good to actually hear you guys talk back. Welcome back uh, in 2022. Welcome to church today. As we begin our new series called We Are. Uh, I'm excited for this because I've never gotten to kick off a series before. So this is a first for me. Um, and in this series, we're going to try to answer the question, what type of people are we supposed to be? What type of Christians are we called to be? Um, with a title like that, we're going to have to answer that question. We have five weeks to go through this and to uh, try to address this properly and answer the question. Um, I believe that most people have very keen investigative minds where they want to dig in and they want to know the truth and they want to explore and they want to learn more. So, We're going to start off with a little warm-up this morning. Um, And you may hate this, and that's fine, but I've been up here more than I care to be up here, so I get the say. So uh, we're going to do a couple of quick puzzles. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you a movie poster, to be specific, and you can figure out what type of movie is this. Is this a drama? Is it a comedy? Yada, yada, yada. Is it a romance? You get the idea. So let's, uh, let's throw up the first poster real quick. Uh, obviously, you know what movie it is. The title is there, Saving Private Ryan. This is a poster for Saving Private Ryan. Given no context whatsoever, what kind of movie would you say this is? Drama, drama, drama. drama. Someone said war? Yeah, I would say war. Look at the helmets. Look at the soldier, you know what I mean? You gotta assume some kind of war is gonna happen in this movie, right? Let's try one with no title, throw up the other one. Oh, there we go. <laughs> romance, who said romance? <laughs> <laughs> Who's, yeah, monster movie, good job. It's a monster movie, it's Godzilla versus Kong. Some people do not even notice Kong, they were just like, oh yeah, Godzilla. They don't notice the giant frame. <laughs> over the city skyline. And that's fine. I could show you any movie poster and you could look at that and say, oh, great, it's, a, it's another romantic comedy or oh, great, it's another guy movie, another Quentin Tarantino movie, yada, yada, yada. You could look at a poster and you can identify if it is something that you want to see or not. Um, but posters are just one kind of advertising when it comes to movies. I could show you a trailer I could, for example, show you the trailer for The Shining, which I will not do. But we had serious discussions about how funny that would be. Um, I could show you a trailer for The Shining, and you would immediately know that's a horror movie. Some people would watch it and say, that's the greatest horror movie ever made. And a lot of people would think that because of the shots, because of the dialogue, but more than anything in a movie trailer, you would think it because of the music, because of the haunting music that is underneath. Unless you did the same exact trailer with the same exact shots and you put a happier song underneath of it. That would change everything, right? Let's try real quick. film. <laughs> it was a family film all along. We had no idea. I could show you a poster, I could show you a movie trailer, and you would immediately know what type of movie it is. Um, and I love watching movie trailers in the theater with my wife, because like, we, look at, we watch each one, and then afterwards we look at each other and react like, oh, that looks pretty good. Yeah, you should go see that. Or like, so stupid. You know what I mean? But I get genuinely excited to see what directors have tackled next after their last project. So you look at advertisements and you can recognize and identify the genre, what they represent, if it's for you or not. So here's a question, just to dig deeper. How do you recognize and identify this? How do you recognize and identify church? How do you recognize and identify fork- Christian Church, specifically. Is it our logo? Probably not. Does anyone know what our logo is? There is one. Yeah, it's yeah in the box, and the it's got the the F that looks like a flamingo. Yes. Okay. So yeah, there is a logo. Is it the logo? No. Is it the name? Fork Christian Church. Is our name what keeps us going? Do you think people hear this and they're just like, ooh, fork, that sounds fun. Let's give it a shot on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's the worship. That's possible. These are different things that draw people into certain churches. Let me ask you a more direct question. What is our church known for? I'll give you a hint. It is not the lead pastor. (laughs) Friendliness. Friendliness. Who said that? Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Very good. Yes, friendliness. That's a great answer. We can come up with a whole list of different things to go on top of friendliness, right? It is not just friendliness that we're known for. Um, Kindness, honesty, those kinds of things. Fellowship, community. Um, But what does Jesus say his church should be known for? In scripture, Jesus comes out and he actually identifies what it is that we should all be known for here in this building. Uh, And what if I told you that what Jesus wants us to be recognized for, it requires the participation and the investment of all of us. And when I say all of us, I don't mean the people that are here at 9 a.m. I mean the people that are at 11 a.m. as well. I mean the people that are usually here that couldn't make it this week. I mean the people that are watching online at home. Okay? It requires the investment of all of us, what Jesus has illustrated. So we're going to start off in John chapter 13 today. And the focus for today's teaching, it's mostly going to be two verses. Two verses that are so important for us, but more than that, so important for our church. But before we dive into it, here's a little context first. Jesus is at dinner with his disciples. It is the very last dinner that he will have with them before he goes to the cross. And it's during this meal that he says, I give you a new commandment. This is huge. He doesn't just drop that. Okay? That doesn't just get peppered in randomly. How often is this actually said? I give you a new commandment. I mean, these disciples, they grew up with the Ten Commandments. So they hear Jesus, who they follow, say, I give you a new commandment. And the meal suddenly is, the room has frozen. Imagine it if you will. Make no mistake, what's happening here at this dinner, it stands out. It's an important moment. He says, I give you a new commandment and it's like the air is sucked out of the room. Everyone is on the edge of their seat waiting to hear what this is. Here's a little more context to it. That adds a little more gravity to the moment. This story directly follows an interaction that Jesus has with Judas. Where he says, Someone at this table will betray me. And while they all wonder who's going to do it, Jesus looks at Judas and says, Whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. So he knows what's happening and he knows where it's coming from. And it's right after this moment that he's giving a new commandment. The context of this commandment is that Jesus knows who's going to betray him, he knows that he's about to be betrayed. And then the commandment comes in, John 13, 34. So now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus says, I want my church to be known for its love. So take a look around the room. Take a look at the people that are sitting next to you. Take a look at the people. No one's actually looking. Take a look around the room. <laughs> look at the people that are sitting next to you. Look at the ones that are looking down at their phones. do oh, It's all right. This isn't like an old school Catholic moment. I'm not going to have you shake hands or anything like that. Peace be with you. Nothing like that. Just take a look at the people in this room. And then ask yourself this question. Do I really believe that God expects me to love all of these people? once you think you have an answer to that, ask yourself the second question. What is that love even supposed to look like? What is it even supposed to look like to love this person in the row that I have never seen before or to love this person that I know and don't actually get along with all that well? What kind of love is that? Now, we've all heard this passage. Some of you have the passage memorized. And you're very familiar with it. And sometimes that familiarity can lead to complacency. The full gravity of what he's saying here, it can easily be lost on us because we've heard and read this verse so many times. And if we're honest, we'll admit that we're a little mixed up on the word love altogether, right? Because we use love incorrectly, not even daily, throughout the day. We apply the word love to so many different things. We use it when we talk about warm and fuzzy feelings that we have thinking about that special person. We use love to talk about caring for people, praying for people, or just generally wanting the best for someone else. Um, We love ice cream. We love vacations. We love local sports teams or sports teams that aren't local. We love taking naps. We love hanging out with friends. Not friends, hanging out with friends. Love the activity. We love cheesy movies. We love cheesy books. We love cheesy food. <laughs> we use the word love so casually that we've gotten to a point where we forget what the word actually means. And when we hear the word love, we think of all of those things that we love, those out of context things, and we compare it to that. But Jesus goes on to clarify exactly what it is that he means. Love each other just as I have loved you. And what that clarification does is it removes any notion of what our idea of love is. And then he takes it further by saying, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So this flips the script on what his followers thought they knew. It's not their works. It's not their morals. It's not even how they loved him. It's how they, or we, love one another. That is our defining trait that will identify us to one another about whether or not we follow Christ. American Christians have kind of we've tended to lean on our knowledge of Scripture, OK? Because we have more knowledge at our fingertips than any other generation before us when it comes to the Bible. Uh, it's not a bad thing, don't hear me wrong, but when you look at how some of us live, you understand that knowledge is not everything. Knowledge is not everything. There were hundreds of years of Christians who were active in following God when they didn't have a Bible in their own language. And then there's us. We not only have hundreds of different translations of the book in our language, we also have hundreds and hundreds of years worth of theologians to study from and thousands and thousands of commentaries to better inform us. Christians today might possibly be the most educated about God and yet the least obedient to him simultaneously. So what is it that determines if we're Christians? It's not your knowledge of scripture. It's not your political standing. It's not your insight into how the world works or how you think it should work. It's not how much you tithe. Elders will be mad at me for that It's not whether or not you volunteer, though we do need a lot of volunteers right now. Just putting that out there. Jesus says it's who and how we love and that we should love the way that he loves. And that is a tough standard to live by because no one has ever loved more or as much as Jesus Christ. So how do we realistically live up to that? How do we love like that? I mean, he overwhelmingly loved people who so consistently treated him poorly. God's love is a very difficult thing to grasp. I think back on the worst decisions that I've ever made, not accidental situations that I happen to find myself in, but decisions that I consciously made the ones that still sit with me, the ones that I have a difficult time moving past, or the ones that I have a difficult time just grasping with and having to live with. And what I read in Scripture tells me that Jesus saw me making those decisions, knew I would make them, saw me make them, And all of that before he went to the cross and he went to the cross for me anyway. And that is true for all of you and all of us. He knew the mistakes that we would make. He knew the sin that we would choose. He saw it and sacrificed himself for us anyway. If Jesus is really our authority, and I'm reading Jesus' words as my authority, that means our love for one another has to be a priority. I really did not mean for that to rhyme. Our love for one another has to be a priority. Throughout his life of teaching, Jesus commands us to love all kinds of people, all different kinds of people, but perhaps most notably, he instructs us to love our enemies. Matthew five forty four says, "Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." So, if we love our enemies, you think loving one another would be obvious? But one of his reasons that his command to love one another is so revolutionary is because his disciples had no control, no control whatsoever, or who, on who would be included in one another. They had no say in one another. They had filters just like we do. There are people that we want to love, and then there are people that we don't want to love. And they dealt with the same issues. The context doesn't change. There are probably people in this room that you find difficult to love. There are probably people in your family that you find difficult to love. And the holidays reminded you of it. That's not a stretch of the imagination that the disciples felt the same exact way at that moment When this was spoken to them by Jesus right there at that table, we already talked about Judas, but at this point he hadn't betrayed Jesus yet. So not thinking of Judas. who else is in the room? One of these guys at that point in time was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector when he met Jesus tax collectors back then, especially made a profit off of the oppression of their own people. They were despised. First century Jews hated tax collectors. And while Jesus is in this room telling his disciples to love one another, Matthew is in that room sitting among them on full display. And you know some eyes kind of went to him like, "Uh, are you sure? Like love everyone in this room? Later in scripture, we're introduced to Saul, who later became known as Paul. Who before meeting Jesus was known and feared for murdering and imprisoning as many Christians as he possibly could. And Jesus brings him into the story when God appears and speaks to him. Paul is converted. He's baptized. He starts preaching in the synagogues. But when he goes to Jerusalem, he tries to join the disciples and what ends up happening. They were all afraid of him. None of them trusted him. Because of who Paul was, because of what Paul had done. And yet, in that fear and in that distrust, they were called to love him. If you think Jesus said, Love one another once you know them well, or you're comfortable with them, or when times are good in your life, or when you feel like it, understand that he gave this new commandment as he knowingly allowed one of his followers, one of his friends, to betray him. We'll keep going on. Matthew five forty three through 44 says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus instructs us to love our enemies, it's just a small part of his teaching in this sermon on the mount we're coming to the tail end of a section where Jesus has been showing his disciples how the Pharisees have been misinterpreting and misapplying Old Testament passages. And he's teaching them that God calls us to more than just surface level obedience. And in his teaching, he's revealing what God actually calls us to. There's that phrase at the beginning, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And in doing that, he's teaching us what is really meant in this statement that we've heard before. So we start off with the disclaimer. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. And when you hear love your neighbor, your mind probably goes to one of two passages. The greatest commandment in Matthew 22, where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, which actually comes from Leviticus 19:18. That's the first passage. The other passage is Luke 10, which is the parable of the good Samaritan. There's an expert in law, an expert in religious law who knows that you're supposed to love God and knows that you're supposed to love your neighbor, but he questions Jesus just for clarification and says, who is my neighbor? And I remember being in a small group in college and thinking to myself, like, man, this guy's an idiot. Who doesn't know who their neighbor is? But he's not saying that because he's not smart. He's clarifying because love costs us something. When we decide to love somebody, it costs us something. Love is not easy. For anyone here that has ever been burned by love before, you know that it is not an easy thing. It requires something from us. So who is the person that fits into that category? How much of myself do I have to give? And I'm glad that the question was asked. Because it would have been misinterpreted to no end if it wasn't. Some of us think that our neighbor is literally the person that lives next door to us. Some of us expand our horizons and think about the person across the street. And then there's a common understanding of the word neighbor that means someone who is like me, someone who I like to hang out with. But what Jesus does is he helps them see that this whole category of neighbor, it's not just people across the street and it's not just people who we like and people who like us. The call to love your neighbor is the call to be a neighbor to those that you would call your enemies. I'm going to say it again because it's worth remembering and it's worth writing down. The call to love your neighbor is the call to be a neighbor to those that you would call your enemies. It's not love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. The Greek word that's used here for love, uh, it means great affection or great care for someone. It's a benevolent love, a love that looks for someone's highest good. That kind of love for your enemy. Similar to the expert of the law, we may now be asking ourselves well, what kind of enemy? Because there are different enemies in my life. What type of enemy fits into this category? And the reality is the word enemy here has a very broad meaning and it means any and all people that you don't get along with. So think about those people in your life right now. You have that coworker. I don't need to describe who it is. You know who it is. You have that family member. You have that person that used to be a friend but is not anymore because of what they did or what you did. When Jesus says to pray for those who persecute you, he's including people who see what God is doing in your life and then that's what they go after. People who have done something in your mind that is so far beyond your forgiveness that part of you doesn't even want God to forgive them. Do you have people in your life that fall into any of these categories? How on earth are we supposed to love people like that? Jesus gave us the great commission. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all kinds of people. And he wants to include every type of person into our spiritual family. You don't get to choose who they are. All you get to know is that God loves them. And so he commands us to love them too. That doesn't mean, or that means when you're in Christ, you're called to love people that you don't naturally connect with. People with different and yes, difficult personalities. We are called to love those that he loves. So who does he love? He loves us in spite of our sin and in spite of all of our failures. He loves us. He loves his enemies. He loves those who are difficult to love. He loves those who are hard to trust. He loves those that persecute us. And those examples are all from scripture. And we're called to love how he loves. Not just who he loves, but how he loves. So how does he love? We can see his love as an opportunity. The way that Jesus loves, if we are to take that on ourselves, that is an opportunity. Because if he just loves all of these people who don't deserve it, that seems really one-sided. So it's not about who we choose to love, it's about who we get to love. All of the people that we get to love. If we're supposed to love everyone, we certainly choose to love all all of those that hurt us, oppose us, and hate us. But we also get to love all of the people that we're indifferent towards. The last waiter that you had wherever you ate. That person that was driving like a maniac on 95. <laughs> I don't know why people laugh at that. I guess there's a lot of those. We also get to love our families, friends, and people that we sit in church with. Not just when we feel like it or when it's convenient or when times are good, but always. What the point of all of this, what we're getting to here, and to tie it back to the, what seemed like a pointless activity at the beginning is We are the movie trailer. We are the poster. We're the logo. We're the advertisement. People outside of the church are supposed to look at our relationships inside the church in order to better understand what God's love looks like. Our relationships with one another are supposed to be the attraction for the kind of relationship that people can have with God. So let's make that a point, point. and let's make that a point this morning. Let's make our relationships here in church teach this community about the love of God. Let's be intentional about how we treat one another, about how you treat your friends, about how you treat your family members. Be intentional about how you treat them. And let's just make an effort to live in that as we head into this new year. We make so many resolutions when the new year starts, but treating people better is rarely one of them. Let's learn to love the people that we are called to love so that we can be what Jesus has called us to be. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this message that we get from your word this morning. Uh, I thank you for everyone that was here to hear it and everyone that's watching at home, Lord. Um, And I know that this is a difficult topic. Um, I just pray for everyone that struggles with it in the slightest, myself included, that we learn to better love those that are in our lives, that we learn that everyone is the type of person that deserves your love and therefore deserves our love. And I pray that we sit with that this morning and carry it with us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.